Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an Associate Professor of Management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world, everyone. Today, I am honored to have Professor Keith Grint. Keith Grint has been Professor Emeritus at Warwick University since 2018. He spent 10 years working in various positions across a number of industry sectors before he switched to an academic career. And it's been, a, it's been a, an academic career working at the highest levels. And I've noticed this, Keith. Many people who were in industry who switched, there's some giants out there who, who have both of those perspectives, which I love, but that's not part of your bio. I'm going to jump back into your bio here. He received his doctorate from the University of Oxford in 1986, and he was a junior research fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford University, between 85 and 86, and a research fellow there between 86 and 87. He made his way to become a university lecturer in organizational behavior at the School of Management, which is now Said Business School. And between 1998 and 2004, he was university reader in organizational behavior at the Said Business School and director of research there between 2002 and 2003. From 2004 to 2006, he was professor of leadership studies and director of the Lancaster Leadership Center. Our good friend and, and former guest, Steve Kempster, is there. Between 2006 and 2008, he was professor of defense leadership and deputy principal, Shrivenham Cranfield University. He was professor of public leadership at Warwick Business School from 2009 to 2018. Folks, he is a fellow of the International Leadership Association, a professional fellow of the Australian Institute of Police Management. He's a founding co-editor with David Collinson of the journal Leadership and co-founder of the International Studying Leadership Conference. I am so excited to get to that someday. He was elected a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in 2012 and awarded an honorary doctorate of science from Warwick University. He has written a number of books, countless journal articles, and sir, Keith, what what do we what gaps do we need to fill in? What would what else would you like listeners to know about you? What could they know about me? So I come from um I was an army kid, so I was born in Bermuda. Ah. I've lived in six different countries, 26 different homes. 
I got expelled from school when I was 18. It took me about 10 years to recover from that and try to work out what I was trying to do with my life. And then I discovered the Open University. And then after that, I just never stopped learning. So uh, that's it. That's me. Thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs> Best podcast ever. Just done. Thank you. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So in that 10 years, what did you discover that that then after discovering the Open University really kind of sparked that curiosity and that passion for learning? So I, I discovered that most, most people's working lives struck me as being extraordinarily boring. Mm. So I spent, I worked in factories, I worked on farms, I worked in the post office for a long time, and every single job that I did bored the pants off me. And I began to realize if I didn't do something about my life, I would end up just regretting everything because it was just so dull. I was in, working in the post office in York yeah. one day, and an old lady, a pensioner, came up to, to claim her pension, which we paid out on a Thursday. As she came in, I remember putting my head on the counter desk and raising my, it's my date stamp that you have to stamp their books. Yeah. I raised it above my head and I shouted out very loudly, if this is all there is to live for, I'm going to kill myself with my date stamp so at least people will know the exact day I died on. <laughs> so I, I sat there with my head on the counter and my date stamp poised and the old lady pushed her pension book through to me and said, before you kill yourself, young man, could you just pay my pension? <laughs> so that, that woman saved my life. <laughs> and then on, on, that, um, on that lunchtime, I went out and I went to find a book to read in the bookshop and it had a little the cover there was a little mark which i didn't recognize so i bought the book came back and it's and the mark was a book for one of the set books for the open university huh and i thought i'll try this so i tried it and then i never i never really looked back i left the post office and went to do my undergraduate degree and then my doctorate and so there's this initial interest in sociology and politics. And is that, is that what brought you then to this topic of, of leadership? Because I'm an army kid, I've always been interested in the military. I never wanted to join the army, mm. but I've always been interested in it and um, been, become familiar with it. But I've also always been interested in dissent mm. and, and trying to respond to the fact that my father's life seemed to be one of compliance all the time. Then I went to boarding school which was a very similarly organized institution in terms of it being a, a, what we would call a total institution run on similar regulations. And I got increasingly resentful of the restrictions put on my life. That caused all kinds of ructions and eventually they threw me out. Then I went to work in various places and I, in the post office, I became one of their trade union officials. Okay. They looked for a volunteer and I became a trade union official and became involved in the union movement. And that got me interested again in a more professional way about leadership and dissent and how you manage that. And then I went, I did the Open University degree <clears throat> that was in um, really in sociology. And then I did a, another undergraduate degree at York University in politics. But all of those were, were focused to some extent on the issues of dissent and resistance and leadership and followership. So even though I didn't start out wanting to look at leadership. I think that was the kind of subtext to what I was intrigued by all the time. Then I, I did my, uh, my doctorate at Oxford. I got a job at Brunel University teaching organizational behavior. And then after six years, I came back to Oxford and somebody asked me if I taught leadership because they had an executive program at Oxford, which I'd never taught executives before. 
And I said, well, I, I don't have an executive lecture. I have an undergraduate lecture. I'm happy to do that for an hour. So yeah. I did that for an hour. And somebody came up afterwards and said, that was really interesting, but I don't see the point. I said, what do you mean you don't see the point? And he said, well, the ideas were interesting, but I don't see how that makes a difference to the way that I might run my life in any way, shape or form. Wow. So first of all, I was kind of um, resistant. You know, that, that's your problem. That kind of, you're a student. You mean, you mean yeah. you're telling me my session didn't just change your life? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, don't be the first to say that. <clears throat> when I thought about that and reflected on it, and then I looked into it a bit more, it became apparent that actually there wasn't there weren't very many people in the UK that were looking professionally at leadership in an academic sense. Yeah, there were there were quite a few in the US, but they were primarily looking at business issues. They were primarily psychologists, and I was interested more in uh, sociological or political aspects rather than the business aspects. Um, and because there was virtually nobody writing, I thought, well, maybe this is my niche area. Exactly. And then, and, and then I secondly I realised that actually when you look at leadership, you can do anything. I mean, everything's involved leadership at some point. So that kind of that massively expanded my horizons of what I could research. That was it, really. I just kept going down that path. I had a, a guest on the show last week. He was the former dean of the College of Medicine at Dartmouth. And he, it was a really neat quote. And I, don't, I, don't, I didn't ask him if it was his quote. So we'll just attribute it to him. But his name is Chip Shoba. And he's an MD. And he said, uh, leadership is a mountain with no top. And I, I feel that way sometimes when it comes to studying or talking about this topic. It's a mountain mm. with no top. I mean, it's just, so to your point, I mean, there's just so many different directions and, and vantage points we can take on this topic. And I, I, I want to start today with this book that you wrote, Leadership, a very short introduction. And you do a really nice job in that text of, distinguishing a few terms. Uh, you call it uh, it's leadership, followership, management, and then command. Would you help listeners think through how you think about those concepts? Because I think it might help set the stage for our discuss discussion on your latest work. When I first started writing, uh, I was kind of drawn into writing about uh, leadership and management, never quite, never quite being clear if there was a division between those two or it was just a rhetorical device. And then I began to teach primarily the military students at Cranfield University. So the bit of Cranfield that I worked in called the Defence Academy, it's the equivalent of a military university. It became clear to me that there was something missing in this leadership management issue, because lots of things that the military were working on were what they called command. They weren't really to do with, I mean, they, they kind of put it under a leadership heading, but to my mind, it, it wasn't the same thing because you, you could command somebody differently from the way that you might lead them. So that made me think about, well, maybe there are, maybe there are these, at least three decision modes that we need to consider. And that almost simultaneously, I began to look at the Tame and Wicked Problems material and then recognizing again that actually there was something missing in, in that material. There, there wasn't any kind of crisis problems. There were just Tame problems or Wicked problems. Mm. And if you had a crisis problem, then presumably you'd need to command that to be much more coercive than you would be if you were in the uh, leadership mode. So I, I, I then associated leadership with wicked problems because nobody really knows how to address a wicked problem. So you need to collaborate. You need more than one person to be able to understand this. Yes. So I called that leadership, recognizing that that confuses lots of people. The critical problem was for command because you had to coerce people, but you could only really do it in a short space of time. Yeah. 
Uh, and then the tone problems, which is what most of us do most of the time, I regard it as a management issue because there was a way of resolving those kinds of problems. And it was known. There were standard operating procedures. And you just had to let people get on with it yeah. rather than um, what we would call, you know, work with a long screwdriver to look over their shoulders all the time. Yeah. So th- those are the those three aspects came out. And then there's a kind of separate a separate run in here. I was asked to come and do some talks to uh, the very first military people before I became part of Cranfield University. And they said, we've got all this leadership stuff, but they'd noticed that I'd written some work on followership and they'd never thought about followership. Would I be interested in coming to talk about followership? So I basically used to start out by saying, if you if you don't talk about followership, you've got no understanding of leadership. It doesn't make any kind of sense to talk about leadership without followership because it is by definition a relationship issue. I mean, I'm, then I used to kind of make this joke about, you know, if you look at all the competences and you measure me and all the competencies, I'm bloody brilliant at leadership, except when I have some followers and that completely screws it up because they never do what I'm hoping they're going to do. <laughs> so you can be the best, you can be the best educated, competent leader, but it doesn't work on the ground if you don't have any kind of relationship with followers. And that and that kind of chimed with a bit the very first part of the VSI book that you just mentioned, where I talk at the beginning about how I thought I knew about leadership before I'd read about it, because I'd, you know, I'd done this trade union leadership stuff and I'd had some experience of that and I knew how to do all that. And then I began to read the leadership literature. And I, then I realized I knew absolutely nothing. And the more I read, the less I understood. Mm. So you have this kind of inverse correlation between the, you know, the amount of knowledge and the amount of wisdom you've got. I knew nothing and, and yet thought I was great. And then I realized that actually I was really poor at this because I understood virtually nothing despite having read some stuff. <laughs> and then I, I, in that VSI book on, on one of my um, Amazon reviews, it's, it says, I think, I think most people regard it as all, it's quite, it's, it's not a bad book, but one person had given me a one star and said, I, I read to page one on this. And the author said, the more he read, the less he understood. So what was the point of me reading any further? So I didn't read any further. <laughs> I thought, that's brilliant. That's just exactly what you understand by this. It's, this whole nonsense about assuming that leaders you know, know everything. It's a bit, I think this is, this kind of undermines a, a problem that I, I frequently talk about, which is our confusion between confidence and competence. Mm. You know, we just follow confident people. Uh, I mean, Boris Johnson, our British Prime Minister, is exactly this, extraordinarily confident under any circumstance. And even with his having his leg chopped off, he'll still be, oh, it'll be fine. I'll be able to hop around. There won't be a problem. But in terms of competence, I think there's a lot missing. Keith, you're making me think of the... Is it the Black Knight in Monty Python where yeah, 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 nearly Black- a flesh wound? You know, exactly. <laughs> this this over positivity, which is just it's just terrible. But I think you know, politicians, especially those kinds of politicians, they do the opposite of what they should be doing. What they should be doing is what Ronnie Heifetz talks about, disappointing us at a rate we can manage. Yeah. And that's that's the real hard skill of leadership. But Boris does the opposite of that. He tells everybody it's going to be fantastic. What are you worrying about? Of course, there are people dying, but that's what happens. <laughs> and I'll send this to you, but I just read a nice, and it, and it links some of the adaptive work from Heifetz to the leadership of Jacinda Ardern in, uh, in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and her approach that was a little bit different. And of course, yeah. a different context, but but very interesting, right? I mean, it's so fascinating. And then you you move into this topic in your latest book on mutinies. I really had not thought about this 
topic to any any depth. Obviously, I, I know what it is, yeah. but I hadn't ever come across that word and the term leadership. So I'm excited for this conversation. And, and there's a really cool phrasing that you have. Whenever leadership emerges within a group, there will be resistance to that leadership. Discontent may manifest in a number of ways, and action will always be determined by factors such as resource, numbers, time, space, and the legitimacy of the resistance. What then turns discontent into mutiny? It's it's like I've just read the opening of a incredibly wonderful novel. I want to learn more. Oh, well, I'll just turn it into a novel and then maybe I'll sell more. <laughs> What started me out on this journey, apart from the usual stuff about dissent and leadership and all that, is, is trying to work out why, why people, why followers put up with stuff for so long and then all of a sudden didn't put up with stuff. Yeah, what point? And, right? Yeah, so, so we know that it's, it's not the poverty of the conditions. It's not, it's not the fact that we, you know, when things are bad, people don't revolt. They only revolt not just when things are bad, but when they can find a way of making it less bad, when they can do something about it. So things could be incrementally terrible, but nobody will make a move until somebody says or realizes, you know what, we could do something about this. Yeah. And at that point, then you begin to think about, so who is it who does this and how do they do it? And you know, what, is the, what are the difficulties? So there are, there are all kinds of examples in the book. I try to flesh out why certain groups mutiny, whether that's always necessarily a positive or a negative thing. There are some mutinies which you can almost see, but you can see coming like mutiny on the bounty, which what you've got in the, in the Royal Navy at that point in time is you've got people stuffed into a little ship for six months uh, under terrible conditions. Sometimes they get beaten, but by and large, the crew that are involved in the mutiny aren't necessarily coerced more than other mutiny, but more than other Royal, Royal Navy uh, ships, crews. But what happens is, of course, they, they go to Tahiti and they're, for all kinds of natural reasons, they're stuck in Tahiti for, more long, for longer than they should be. Yeah. The consequence of that is many of the crew then start making relationships with the local women. And it, it's, an, it's a paradise. So they have kind of nine months of their lives in a paradise, not really yeah. working, just moving in with the, with the local uh, Tahitian women and starting families. And then the captain says, oh, by the way, we're going back on this junk. And I'm gonna, if you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to beat you again. And for some reason, they say, oh, I'm not so sure about that, boss. You know, to, be, to be perfectly frank, I'd rather stay here. I think I'll, I think I'll pass on that, sir. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you go on your own if you like, but I'm busy. I'm, I'm pulling this sticky. And so that, that kind of mutiny is fairly obvious uh, as to why it occurs. But there are others that start out with really small issues or appear to be small issues and then explode. So there's one point in the early part of the 20th century in uh, Portsmouth, which is the biggest dockyard, shipyard in the UK at the time, where the Royal Navy is, a, a group of sailors are coming off duty. And one of the officers stops them and tries to discipline them because they're, they're making a bit of a noise. And he, he calls on them to, quote, take the knee. Because taking the knee at this point in time is usually restricted for musket fire. You know, so you take your knee if you're the first line of the muskets and then the other line stands above you. That's what the taking of the knee was supposed to be about. But this isn't about musket fire. This is about this particular naval officer trying to coerce and embarrass and shame 
these sailors by making them take the knee in front of him for oh. no apparent reason. Huh. And that leads, that leads to a mutiny, and there's all kinds of fallouts from that. So that there is, there, there's a range of explanations for why mutinies occur, and some of them are just almost instantaneous. They're just, I'm not putting up with this anymore. But more likely, you get, you get mutinies that go across in a pattern. Okay. So, for example, in the, in the First World War, the biggest mutinies in the French army occur in 1917 after a terrible offensive, which goes terribly wrong, and there are, there are thousands killed. And the French army just say, we're not putting up with this anymore. We're not going to do it. And they, they by and large, they stop fighting wow. uh, for, a, for a few weeks. It's all covered up. Quite a few of them are shot. Uh, and then they get back to work and it, it carries on. Whereas the British mutinies, they don't, they don't really have any mutinies except in uh, 19, Christmas 1914, when they have the so-called Christmas truce between the British and the German troops when they stopped fighting over the Christmas of 1914, which is actually a mutiny because they mm. refused to fight. Ah. But in all the, all the official reports, they call it a truce because they're trying to hide the fact that they no longer have control over their troops. And the troops subjectively said, we're not fighting, it's Christmas. Keith, uh, was this on both sides? Yeah, on both sides, yeah. Both Germans and Brits. I think both sides, both officers realized very quickly that it was completely out of control. They couldn't shoot their way back to discipline. So they just let it go for 48 hours. And then they gradually began to, to regain control. But actually, most of the British mutinies occurred in 1919 when they're trying to demobilize after the war and it isn't going fast enough. Mm. And the, the British troops are thinking, if I don't get back home soon, now I've done my duty. We've beaten the Germans. I'm still in uniform. The jobs are going quick. Uh, and now Churchill is saying things like, actually, I think we need to uh, invade Russia because the Russians are now being taken over by the Bolsheviks. So don't demobilize yet. We'll send you over to Russia. Oh. And, 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 and the British response is that that's not part of the deal. So the social contract yeah. is about us being in the war until the Germans have been defeated. Then we're all going home. And so basically, the, almost the whole British army just mutiny. And in the end, the, the British government have to accept it. And we, th there aren't very many troops sent to Russia. And most of them are demobilized pretty quickly. So there are all kinds of explanations for why mutinies break out. But what I'm really intrigued in beyond that is, you know, how you lead one. Yes. It's, it's a really difficult thing to do because we, by and large, the people that lead mutinies end up being executed. I would, I would imagine it's not going to go well most no. of the time, right? Almost, almost never goes well. So then the question would be, so why would you do, why would you put yourself through this knowing that the chances of you surviving, I mean, you're... Your fellow mutineers might get off, but it's yes. unlikely that you will. So I'm kind of intrigued by um, why people do this, and I and I kind of um, I kind of look at the very end of the book about whether there is um, what's sometimes called a, a puerobustus, which is a kind of an awkward person within most societies. There are awkward people. Okay. They're not necessarily left wing or right wing. They're just awkward people, and they don't comply, and they're very recalcitrant. And it seems to me that quite often mutinies are controlled and run by these kinds of individualists who are quite different from most of us. Who are just, yeah, whatever, boss, of course, I'll do whatever you want. And they're not like that. And they put themselves out for the greater good. And it's a really unusual thing to do. And it almost, it almost feeds into the back of, you know, why do most people comply? It's the kind of all the, ex all the Milgram experiments, for example, about yeah, yeah. mass compliance. Most of us, under most circumstances, would comply with something which isn't great. Yep. But there's always, you know, a fifth to a third of the population who say, I'm not doing that. 
and I don't care what you do to me. And that's what intrigues me is, you know, wh- where do those people come from and why do they do this kind of stuff? So the book is trying to work out both the kind of social aspects of this. What, what are the general motivations? What are the social patterns? And at the very end, why do some individuals take it on themselves to say, not only is this not right, but I'm going to put, I'm going to put it right. Keith, are there any, are there, is there a story that comes to mind for you of an individual who did put themselves out there and that, that intrigued you as you were doing the research for this? So one of the first mutinies that I looked at is, um, is a pair of mutinies in England in 1797. So 1797 is the time of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. All right. So the whole, whole of Europe seems to be on fire with these revolutionary ideas, the rights of man and all the rest of it. And there are two mutinies in the British Navy, one's near Southampton and one's further down towards London. And the Southampton one is the one that comes first. It's a real surprise to the Royal Navy. It's very well organised. There's great solidarity amongst the sailors. Wow. They, they select their own leaders. And so each ship has two or three leaders or deputies, as they're sometimes called. Uh, they meet, they organise. And six weeks later, the Navy basically gives in to all their demands in terms of better pay, better food and conditions. They don't get everything, but they get kind of three quarters of what they want. And that is regarded as... Um, Less of a mutiny and more of a strike. Okay. So, so the government downplayed the political issues and say, oh, no, it's just a misunderstanding. <laughs> they, they didn't understand how nice we were. If they'd have asked us nicely, we'd have said yes straight away. <laughs> so that's what goes on. And then almost as soon as that one ends, uh, there's another mutiny but for in, down towards London, uh, so-called the Nor. Uh, and then the, the group is, um, is smaller. It's less professional. So it's newer. They've only just been recruited. But they want basically the same thing that the mutineers and the spithead have got. But by this time, the government has now changed its mind about what's going on. It's deeply disturbed by what's happening in France. It's decided that what we're looking at now is not an industrial dispute, but a political revolution. It sends in uh, the uh, Spencer, Lord Spencer, who's actually the, um, the long distant relation of Lady Spencer. Mm. And he basically goes in to destroy the mutiny. And on the other side of the mutiny, there's, um, there's one guy who seems to be, he's a, he's a teacher, and he seems to have decided that the only way that they can be successful is if he puts himself forward to run it. So he's called Parker. He tries to take over the mutiny and tries to steer it away from any kind of violence because he knows what will happen if, if violence occurs, the government will just come down on, uh, heavy on them. Ultimately, it doesn't work. The government are way too organized. They're very coercive. They basically restrict what the mutineers can do. And, and the final scene really is Parker decides that the mutiny is going to fail and he knows what will happen to him. Yep. And he basically surrenders himself and, and says, look, there's clearly been some mistakes here and I know what will happen to me, but just let it happen to me and not, not the rest of the sailors. In the end, about 300 are charged with the mutiny and about 100 of those are hanged, including Parker. Wow. So here's he's, he's a good example of somebody who's not, he's not a political radical. He just decides at that point in time that this is going to be catastrophic unless I can, I can try and shape it so it doesn't get completely out of control. Uh, and the consequence is he loses his life. And I, and I think there are lots of examples within the book about individuals like that who are doing it for the better good and often knowing that this is not going to end good for me. I'm going to end up swinging from something or shot by somebody. Yeah. Uh, and yet they still do it. And, and I think in some ways, 
it's a reflection of a wider social issue that we know that social change and resistance is often based upon one individual saying, taking the knee, I am not doing this. And yeah. I know this might well ruin my career. I mean, I won't get, probably I won't get killed, but it will ruin my career, but I'm not putting up with it. And that, that leads to a then repercussions that are way outside what one individual does. So I think it's a kind of a darker reflection of those kinds of, of issues about why some individuals say enough is enough. I'm not putting up. Keith, are there contemporary examples that you've been paying close attention to, like literally real time in the world right now that or, or that have happened in the last few years? Would you consider uh, January 6th in the States? Would you consider that in, and define that as a, as a mutiny? No. So, so a mutiny in technical terms is a conspiracy by two or more people in a military situation Okay. when they refuse to comply with a legitimate order. So that would, that's more of an insurrection than a mutiny because it's okay. not in a military background. But, okay. I mean, the one that comes out of that, which is equally interesting, I think, which has the kind of smell of mutiny, is when uh, Mark Milley is the general, isn't he, mm-hmm. who, who said very recently has, he had talked to his junior officers in case Trump had decided to press the nuclear button, nothing was going to happen unless it came through him. Mm. Now, formally, since Trump as the president then was commander in chief. So this is a man who's subordinate, who was going to refuse, possibly refuse a legitimate order from a superior officer and has conspired with others to make sure that that order was not complied with. Interesting. So in, in a formal sense, that might have been a mutiny, except then the question would be that. So the definition of mutiny is two or more people conspiring to refuse a legitimate order. Okay. But the question is, is would that have been legitimate? Yeah. And I, I think Billy's argument would have been it would not have been legitimate because we clearly have a deranged person who's trying to destroy large sections of the earth, and that's not a legitimate order, and that's why I refuse to comply with it. So I think even even on that, I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that comes up all the time, by and large, and that what actually occurs in most of the mutinies I'm looking at, there are big disputes about whether, in fact, it is a mutiny, yeah. Or what, what the intention of the uh, mutineers really was. And then you have to think about, so what, what's the intention of the, the state or the superordinate group? Do they, yeah. want to, do they really want to remove all these people, in which case it's going to be a mutiny? And if they don't, they'll call it a strike or a misunderstanding. Yeah. Interesting. Because in this, in this event on January 6th, we have former military involved, engaged, yeah. but because they were... Because they were no longer active duty, it then it is classified differently. That makes sense. Yes, it's not. It's not a mutiny. It could, it could be a coup. It could be all kinds of things, but it's not a mutiny in the sense that I'm talking about. And I, I think part of the problem is that people often use the word mutiny in a much wider sense than the technical sense that I'm talking about here. So mine's just restricted. I mean, it's all. It also covers slave ships because what what slave what slave ships embody and what ships in general embody is so-called sovereign power. Uh, so the, there's nobody else around on the ship. Yep. So so rebellions on slave ships were always counted as mutinies. Okay. Not as something else. Define coup for me. Is this just a, a group of people trying to take over the government? They could be military. They may not be military. Is that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think most coups tend to be military, but then people talk about military coups. Yeah. So then you would know it's the military involved. And it's possible to have a political coup where yeah. you replace the government. But I think most coups... So there was one in, um, which I think, is it in Guinea? Mm-hmm. There was a coup a few months ago. 
Uh, and then you get, so is this, um, is it mutiny? It's a mutiny and it's a coup at the same time. So That's most right. mutinies are not about, they're not about replacing the government system. They're about putting right a wrong as perceived by the mutineers. Okay. But there are some mutinies that transfer across. So the, the Russian mutiny in 1917 is one that leads to the end of the Russian state. And it's the same in Germany in 1918. The, the naval mutinies in 1918 uh, lead to the basically the end of the, the Kaiser and the end of the German state. Even that mutiny, is, it's actually, it actually occurs when the, when the German sailors refuse to comply with an order from their officers for one last battle with the British. Mm. So, the, so the war is, is basically over. The Germans have agreed to cease hostilities, but the German Navy decides it would be really heroic for one last post-war battle. Oh, so they issue orders for the, Royal, for the German Navy to go out and find the Royal Navy and go down all guns blazing. And the German sailors say, I don't think so. We're not doing this. So they actually, they mutiny, but really it's a mutiny against the mutiny. Yeah. Because the, the German officers are mutinying against the German state. So it's a really complex issue. It's, I uh, feel like I'm going down the rabbit hole. Yeah, you, you are. Know, a mutiny yeah. within a mutiny. Yeah. And then there was a is. coup lurking. <laughs> In the end, there was a coup lurking. And of course, what, what, what then happens, and this is the really serious point about this, is because it's start, because 198, because the end of the war starts with this German naval mutiny, and then the, the German armies didn't retreat. What happens is the German high command realize it's all over and they then cede power to the Social Democrats. And it's the Social Democrats that signed the peace treaty, which then means the German military can say, and what became the Nazi party can then say, well, wait a minute, we, we never lost the war. Uh, it was you Social Democrats that signed the peace treaty. Uh, we got stabbed in the back. You did this. Yeah. And now we have our other or some of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the 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 group of the faction of people that we can that we can focus on and galvanize yeah. behind disliking, right? Yes, and that that kind of you know even even now the kind of us the 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 debate recently about the Australian decision to to veto the Australian nuclear submarine deal and go with the American British deal has been regarded by the French as a stab in the back, and that's not a coincidental term. That's a, that's a really interesting political turn because we've been here before. Same one. Well, so, so the stab in the back is the official position that the German right used to explain why they got defeated in 1918. So mm. then, as far as that goes, they've never lost the war. They would have won had they kept fighting. But in fact, we, we all know that that was, that was not the case. But it, it, what that basically meant is that they could then they could find someone to blame yeah. for the German defeat. So the stab in the back became known. It's a kind of um, it's a rhetorical trope yeah. for this the worst kind of treason. And now this is what the Australians have done to the French, and they're talking about. So the French are talking about this in terms of this is a stab in the back, i.e., treasonable behaviour, not just uh, commercial problem, but a treasonable piece of behaviour. And in the British conservative press are now talking about this in terms of the second Trafalgar. So the Battle of Trafalgar is when the British beat the French and the Spanish navies with, with Nelson. And this led to a hundred years of British naval dominance around the globe. So all of this is wrapped around these kind of political configurations and identities that persist across time. And about I mean, the whole thing about Brexit is this notion of, so, so who are the British? You know, we, we used to be somebody yes. and they went, we ended up someone like, like Denmark. 
Yeah. This is not right. So we need to be somebody. So let's get out of Europe and we can become great again. Yeah. We, need, we need more flags. Everybody has to have a flag. Uh, and we need, to, um, we need to start selling our ships around the world and provoking the Chinese if possible. Keith, it's complex, isn't it? It's so fascinating. It's so fascinating. This is, this is just uh, the, north, the north route up the mountain with no top. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that, that no top thing is quite... In- I mean, I just... Uh, I mean, this afternoon, I was talking to a lot of medics, and, and their, their problem was they talked about being overwhelmed all the time by all these medical catastrophes and the political problems and the financial problems. And I, and I tried to persuade them, not, not using the notion of a, the mountain with no top, but in terms of recognizing that this is what it always feels like. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you get to a leadership position, you are always overwhelmed yep. on, by definition. So the trick is to recognize that, A, this always happens. This is what it feels like. Yep. And B, this, this is not a catastrophe. So now you have to work out what you have to focus on. Yep. And not focus on everything. And not try and change the entire world overnight. Yep. You can't do that. All you can do is sort your little bit out. So yep. just focus on your, this is a kind of stoic philosophy thing. It's about yeah. recognizing what you can and you can't do and focus on the bits that you can do. Because I think otherwise, lots of good people end up thinking, do you know what? Uh, because I can't see the top of the mountain, I'm going to give up and go back down again. Yep. And just build a hut and stay there for the rest yeah. of the days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like just play games on my whatever machine I'm using. <laughs> Keith, what else have you been thinking about? I mean, obviously, this this has been consuming your thought for a few years, I would imagine. Well, more than that, but the act of writing. But are there any other things that that are on your mind right now that you're contemplating that have your attention? I'm writing this. I'm now writing a book on resistance, which will probably be my last book. It will take me about five years to, to write. I think it's just enormous. I don't know whether it ever get published. It's so damn big, but um, we'll see about that. Um, but what what I've been very recently intrigued by is the, the patterns in the kind of rhetorical tropes in the sector. So I, I wrote this section on uh, the abolition of slavery. So I'm looking at slave resistance, primarily North American slave resistance, and particularly slave resistance in uh, the West Indies, Haiti and Jamaica in particular, looking at those two sites. And then trying to, trying to work out the links between those kinds of arguments from the groups that are trying to continue with slavery. Mm. So on the one hand, you have the resistance movements, and sometimes they're successful, as in Haiti, and sometimes they aren't, as in Jamaica. But in both cases, there are a group of arguments which are used primarily by slave owners to explain why the abolitionist movement um, is wrong. Yeah. So that there are things like, first of all, um, slavery is actually... Not that diff- not that bad. I mean, you know, we when you when you really go and, and work in the on the plantations, you see they get lots of food and they have you know most days off and everybody is really happy. And by comparison, when you come home to to Britain, for example, look at the state of our poor industrial working classes. You know, they work in factories; they don't get paid very much. They're all starving. So really, slavery is a really good idea. That's the one. That's the first one to think about. Wow. The second one is to think about in terms of um, actually, uh, as a consequence of this, uh, most of the people who have been enslaved are actually really happy, and they they're they're not unhappy with slavery. They're really happy, and they you know if if anybody tries to free them, they say, "Oh no, thank you. I'd rather be a slave." So there's that kind of a, a, a trope. There is something about if we abolish slavery, 
the entire economy of the country will collapse, both uh, France and Britain. Yes. So, you, you know, I know it's a bad idea, but you can't do this. Uh, and then there's something about, so if you do do this, you know the people that you will hurt most, they'll be the poor people of Britain and France. They won't be the rich people, they'll be the poor people. And yeah. that's why you need to continue. And then the fifth one is, okay, well, well, you might have a point, but you know, most of these people who have been enslaved, they're not very civilized and they wouldn't be able to work on their own. So we need to civilize them first and do it over a long period of about maybe 20 years. And then 20 years from now, it'll probably be okay because we'll have civilized them by then. So there are those kinds of rhetorical tropes being used by the uh, anti-abolitionist movements. And then when you, when you look at how that operates in terms of things like um, the environmental movement, you get a similar kind of pattern. So there yeah. are people arguing there, there, is, there actually there is no global warming. And if there is any global warming, it's actually good because we, you know, in the UK, we're sick of all these cold winters. We're going to get some really nice winters. So it'd be fantastic. Uh, and all, all kinds of great things. And we can grow better crops. Yes. So it'll be fine. And if you, if you go down this electrification of cars route, if that's what you want, you know who you will hurt most. You will hurt the poor people because they can't afford those kinds of cars. So they won't have any kind of transport. And that, so what you get is a patterning of the, of the defense of the status quo, yes. which is kind of, which is kind of intri intriguing and also worrying that you see these, these just these repetitions of arguments across time. And it's, it's a different topic, but it's the same kind of rhetorical trope. So that's what I'm, that's what I've been uh, looking at the last couple of days. Keith, that is just, that is fascinating. That's not just the last couple of days, is it? <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of trying to get the links between the two, in terms okay. of looking at the slavery stuff, okay. that's, no, that's about a, a year's worth of work. Okay. At the slaves. I was like, this man is productive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I, yeah, I think no. that is just fascinating. I really do. I mean, even as you were speaking, number five, the last one that you that you shared, I recorded a an episode, and so we were talking a lot about the residential schools. But again, that was at least in the in the when in the church's argument as to why that was a positive yeah. thing. Well, we yeah. have to civilize these people. Right? Yeah. We have to yeah. we have to help them better understand how civilized yeah. people live. And of course, it it was tragic. And one hundred fifty thousand, I believe, was the number of people went through those schools, and many of whom died. I had another guest on, and you'll love this quote, Keith, you really will. His name is Robert Livingston. He's at Harvard, the Kennedy School. And we, we had a conversation about his book called The Conversation. He has a quote in there that will, just has, will forever stick with me. And it went like this, when it comes to mental gymnastics, most of us are Olympic athletes. And so yeah. even you have these, these horrible, horrible approaches to humanity, but somehow we engineer ourselves into justifying why what we're doing there was a conversation on twitter this morning that i was looking at and it was about an american hospital i don't know which, i can't remember which one and it was about the pandemic and about the uh, vaccine deniers and the argument went something like this i have visited this particular hospital and i'm telling you there's nobody there dying of covid and the the emergency unit is completely empty so this is all a conspiracy and you shouldn't be taking any kind of vaccine or listening to any of the people that are saying you should. And then somebody in the hospital responded by saying, uh, this is the official policy of the hospital. This is what's happening. And then listed all these terrible things that were happening in the hospital. And the response was, 
oh my God, I'm sorry. I've, I just realized what, I missed, what a fool I've made. The response was, oh my God, even the hospital is now involved in the conspiracy. <laughs> and this is exactly the problem that you, you know, that there's almost nothing. So, so Karl Popper, the, uh, the Austrian philosopher of science, is sometimes associated with this kind of so-called Popper question, a technique to work out. So how, how can I persuade you to change your mind? You just said something which I think is ridiculous. So yes. what, can I, what can I do? So I'm going to say to you, so, so, so Scott, what, what do I need to say to change your mind? And your answer is nothing. And now I know there's no point in trying to argue. But if you say, <laughs> Keith, if you give me these kinds of pieces of data, then I'd be persuaded. I now know what to look for. Yeah. And so often we don't do that. What we do is we look at you and thinking, I'll tell you what, because you don't understand, I'm going to shout at you a bit louder. <laughs> this, is what, this is what Brits do when they go on holiday in Europe. And if you don't understand my English, I'm going to shout. And that way it'll make more sense to you. <laughs> it's, it's that kind of, and I, I think you get to the point where you realize, you know, there are some people just outside conventions of logic and argument. They're just... Mm -hmm. Their minds are made up, and that is all. That that's it. Done. Finished. And, and and again, that whole that whole process would be. And I'm sure someone is studying that. But it, because it, you know your identity gets wrapped up in some of those beliefs, and now with with the internet, I, I can build community more easily and readily in some in, in people with like minds, regardless of where they are in the world. And Keith, what have you been reading or streaming or watching or listening to that's kept your mind? active and it could have something to do with what we've just discussed or it could have nothing to do with what we've just discussed what's come across your radar recently so looking at afghanistan that's one thing that i've been looking at i've done some stuff on the resistance movement in iraq i haven't done the i haven't done the afghan chapter yet i'm still kind of hesitating about that okay but i, I had i had an afghan student postgraduate student a few years ago and i remember talking to him about it and i said so so do you think the, the West is going to be successful in constructing an Afghan army that are able to resist and uh, eventually defeat the Taliban? And he said, no. Wow. I thought, oh, you seem very positive. Why is that? He said, because people in the West have not understood, they don't understand Afghanistan. And I said, well, okay, so explain it to me. He said, Afghanistan isn't really a country in the, in the sense that you know it. it. It's a series of tribes. Yeah. So our loyalty is to the tribe. It's not to the country. So there's no point in you trying to build a national army. That doesn't make any kind of sense. And the only reason the Taliban lost last time is because you adopted local warlords and their tribal armies and used them against the Taliban. That's what works because they're loyal to their tribal army, not to their, they're not loyal to the state. And when the state is so corrupt anyway, then you've got absolutely no chance. And I, and I compare that to a, a list of quotes that I use in my teaching quite a lot from military officers, senior military officers from, I think about the year two, having moved into Afghanistan. And every year, somebody has said at the very top, without doubt, uh, this is the final year for the Taliban. We are going to achieve a victory this year. And that just every year, a different person says the same thing. Yeah. And, the, and it kind of, I was, I was kind of finished that off by um, thinking about a quote again from my student, what, which was this. So, Keith, this is what the Taliban say. They say, you Americans, you have all the watches and we have the time. And that's a really interesting way of configuring the problem. Yep. It's just, you know, we're just, we're just going to wake you up. We waited the Russians out. We waited the British out twice before. So third time unlucky for you lot. And we'll just keep waiting. 
yeah. and we'll end up in the same Taliban government that we were going to have 20 years ago. Yeah. It's just it's, it's a terrible tragedy in terms of thinking about what's now happening in, in Afghanistan, and particularly to women and girls. But I think that's, that's a, a pattern for misunderstanding what it is you're dealing with. I, I, was, I was reminded when I was looking at Iraq, I was reminded of a friend of mine who went to Iraq and worked with the Americans. He's not an American, but he worked with the Americans. And so this is about like year two. And he emailed me and said, Keith, you're, you're a scholar at Oxford. So could you send me um, contact details for somebody in Oxford who's an expert in Islam? I said, well, I could do, but why do you want me to send the details? He said, oh, because I'm working with the Americans mainly, but also the Brits. And to be frank, we haven't worked out what Islam is yet. And I thought, well, that's great, isn't it? You're two years in and you're beginning to ask the questions about what are we dealing with here? Yeah. As opposed to that should be before you even get there. Well, I believe I, I read an, a, a statistic the other day. Was it $200 million a day for, or was it $300 million a day for, I mean, it's, yeah. it, and, and, you know, the cost of lives, the cost financially, the cost to, to your point, to the, the women and children who have grown up with a certain mindset and now are caught in the middle of a, a horrible, terrible situation. Mm. It's, uh, it's tragic, right? It is. I think, I think this is it's a very, again, it's a very common problem for both our countries in terms of their histories is not to understand what we're getting into, to be disinterested in what we're getting into. The hubris at times, you know? Well, the French couldn't figure it out, so we'll we'll fix Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, that's, ex that's exactly the case. You know, we it's, can it's, do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't it's mean just, to laugh to make light, listeners. It's no, just, but it's, it's, no, it is. It's tragic. Yeah, <laughs> and that, just, I mean those. Uh, just just for an example of that, so I, I currently live in the middle of nowhere in England, uh, in a little village, and we moved in about twelve years ago. And my son-in-law wanted to build a house next door, so. Uh, we told all the neighbors we're going to put some drills in and dig all the concrete up and blah, blah, blah. And on day one, um, somebody banged on my door and there's this um, big American guy and he absolutely went for me and, you know, swearing at me. for. And it was just, it was a tirade of abuse for about five minutes. And in the end, I just shut the door on him. Wow. God, you know, it was just terrible. So I shut the door on him. And then about half an hour later, he banged on the door again. And I thought, okay, here we go. So I opened the door a little bit carefully this time. And he said, uh, I, I'm sorry, I want to apologize for what just happened. I said, hey, well, why don't you come in and we'll, you know, we'll talk about it. So he came in and it turned out he'd been um, in Vietnam. He'd been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And the noise of the drills triggered something in his head and he couldn't cope with the noise. Wow. He was back in Vietnam. He was back in, in combat and he just lost it. And this is in the middle of nowhere in Oxford. You know, it's just extraordinary. The, the reverberations from those kinds of tragedies that just carry on. For decades and decades and decades. Yeah. And, and part of that, I, I love the fact that you are looking at these patterns and you're, how you're thinking about some of this, I think, is so incredibly insightful because it's going to help us think about some of this in a different way. It's going to help inform how we... And and then even even further to that, how do we then address some of those thinking patterns that have been used over and over and over to, what's the word I'm looking for? Influence masses of people to believe certain 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I am always, I've always been interested in his, historical examples, because, mainly because, you, I mean, the data is easier mm-hmm. to get hold of than contemporary data. But, but I'm, not, I'm not interested in history for the sake of history. I want to know, so what does that say about today? Yeah. So, so what that the uh, Haitian resistance did or didn't succeed? So what? And I think what, so the, and the so what is, so what can we learn from this in terms of things like, so how do you successfully change people's responses to the environmental catastrophe that we seem to be staring into. Sometimes the patterns from the past think, you know what, I'm not sure we can do this. But quite often you think, actually, you can do it, but you need to change tack. Keith, I can't thank you enough for your time today. It's been wonderful to have this conversation with you. I hope you'll consider coming back and we can continue the dialogue. I I just really appreciate your work. And I'm, I'm so thankful that people like you are in the world working on some of these very, very challenging problems yes yep. problems problems yep. problems problems yeah yeah okay sir Be okay well. thank you very much see ya bye-bye i loved keith's story of how he had gotten into academia it reminded me of my episode with jonathan reams or even in some ways the episode with sean hannah where you have some individuals who are entering academia a little bit later in life and have just been incredibly prolific and productive in their work. In this conversation, I am sensing just an incredible amount of curiosity, and that's a word that's been on my mind a lot lately, curiosity. We have an individual who is curious about the world, an individual who is curious about seeing patterns, looking at what caused certain events in history, curious about how we help the world use that information to help the world moving forward. Like I said in the in the episode, I am so thankful, Keith, that you are doing the work you're doing, helping us see some of those patterns, capitalizing on that curiosity, and thankfully... That woman came in to get her book stamped (laughs) so that you could have your aha moment and help change the world, make it a better place. Take care, everybody. Be well. Stay curious. And as always, thanks for listening. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.